Today on the Multiplied Podcast, we're talking with guest Heath Adamson about the things leaders should unlearn. Check it out. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Multiplied Podcast, or welcome back. Uh, We're glad you're with us. My name is Jared. My name is David. We are excited for a little part two session here with one of our great friends, Heath Adamson. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot in our first uh, episode with him and, and pumped to, uh, to dive into uh, the second one here. You know, Jared, Heath is one of the most fit foodies I've ever been around, which it's... for someone like me is just inf- infuriating. I'll tell you what, um, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Turns out if you will commit yourself to exercising, you can eat food and, and still be fit, but I've not. that's not been my experience because... I don't exercise. No, that's not my experience either. <laughs> I one time I one time ran over 70 miles in a month and I didn't lose a single pound. Really? That's not right. I mean that's, that isn't right. I apologize, Jared. Some I, there's some sin in my heart that God is punishing me for. I'm convinced of that. That's an that means you ate like an absolute pig. I mean that's the only explanation for that. That you you were, were you eating while you were running? <laughs> well, if you didn't listen to the last episode, check it out. Heath admitted to eating an entire a half of an entire birthday cake by himself in two days. So yeah. True, but he only... it was good. And then I went and ran five miles, Jared. Take the lesson, take the hint. Oh, I need to. <laughs> Heath, good to have you back. Um, for our listeners, if you missed the last one, you got to make sure you go back and, and listen to uh, Heath talking about some of the trends in leadership that we need to be concerned about. And we're going to drill back in on leadership today. Um, and uh, Heath, uh, we want to ask you a little bit about what you've been, uh, this is going to sound funny, but what you've been learning about unlearning. Um, yes. Obviously, there's so much pressure on leaders to be learners and to read and to develop and to grow. And uh, obviously, that's all very important. So it sounds almost like an oxymoron that leaders need to unlearn. Uh, can you unpack that term for us a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so the term unlearn, um, I'm not sure where that term came from. Uh, maybe somebody came up with it. It's just a phrase I've been using for years. It comes from Paul, the Apostle Paul, who said, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to. Uh, I heard somebody say once, I can't remember who this was, but somebody said that oftentimes we think the same way about various things, but life and God requires us to think differently about one singular thing. And that one singular thing would be, what does God think and feel about this? Um, It was the tribe of Issachar. They were the ones who are attributed with understanding the times and knowing what Israel ought to do. Uh, When I think of unlearning, I think of maybe making sure that we, uh, the information, the opportunity, Um, that we are surrounded by to make sure that we are not seduced by it. Oftentimes, information and opportunity, um, what we think are opportunities, are actually distractions. And so we, we are swimming in a sea of information, and our challenge is not that we don't have access to information. Our challenge is we are bombarded by it. So when I think of unlearning, I think of just filtering through, winnowing away all of those things that distract us from the face and the heart of God, because ultimately life in God is about being called to his voice. And uh, it's possible to walk with God in such a way so that according to scripture, we hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. 
So I know you pretty well, Heath, and I know what you're not saying, but I also know what listeners might hear you saying. And it's it's possible to hear what you just said and think, okay, so this is um, possibly like an anti-education um, mindset when it comes to spirituality, um, sort of undeveloped minds and an overdeveloped heart, so to speak, or overdeveloped sensitivity to the spirit. I know that's not you because you're currently, you're finishing up your doctorate program, right? Yes, that's correct. So actually, just a week ago, I emailed my first draft of my thesis for my PhD, so I'm almost done. Amazing, amazing. Congratulations. So I know that's not what you're saying. Um, can you address that tension that sometimes, in, and uh, we serve in a uh, stream of evangelicalism that maybe wrestles with this tension in a unique way, and uh, that tension between loving God with all our minds and um, being educated, being learned, reading well and reading broadly versus uh, the danger you're trying to warn us of, which is getting so uh, filled up and distracted with knowledge that we lose sight of what matters most. Yeah, absolutely. Great question. And yes, just once again to reiterate, um, I'm passionate about learning and education. I think one of the best things we can do is to become a lifelong learner, a lifelong reader. Uh, there are seasons in my life where I would read a book a day, there are seasons in my life where I would read maybe four books a week. Currently now I'm not reading. I'm just writing. Um, but I'm I'm very committed to and passionate about being a lifelong learner. Uh, but the, the purpose to me of information, the purpose of knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, and Scripture does differentiate between the three. To me, the purpose is ultimately about the glory of God and having one more reason why God takes our breath away. You know, for example, when you discover in learning that there are over 300,000 species of beetles, you know, I don't know about you, but I think, oh my word, like only God can come up with 300,000 different species of beetles. Or when you learn that some of the light that hits uh, the, the human eye through the night sky is actually coming from stars that are already burned out but because the universe is so vast and massive, it takes that long for light to travel, uh, the distance that it travels so that we can see it. Uh, it's not about becoming more intelligent. It's about uh, having one more reason to glorify God and stand in awe of the one who knows everything, who created everything. And yet, according to Scripture, he dwells with those of us who are lowly and contrite in spirit. We see what can happen when knowledge and information is unsanctified. Uh, for example, I heard somebody say it this way, that Proverbs is a great example of knowledge that comes from the heart of God, and Ecclesiastes is a great example of knowledge that comes from the heart of man. Uh, obviously, Ecclesiastes is inspired. It's in the Word of God, but when you read Ecclesiastes, you see a lot of hopelessness, you see a lot of despair. When you read Proverbs, uh, you see quite the opposite. What's the point? The point is, is in Proverbs, God is mentioned a lot more than he is in Ecclesiastes. These one, that's one of the lessons God is trying to drive home in instructing the writer, writers of both books uh, to put something down that obviously is ultimately inspired by his spirit. But those who are responsible uh, behind the scenes of the murder and the slaying of Jesus of Nazareth, even though we know that Isaiah is clear it was God's will to crush him, those on the earth that were instruments in that global drama oftentimes confuse the prophecies of the first coming 
of the Messiah with the prophecies of the second coming of the Messiah. And something as simple as having access to information when that information is not coupled with the heart of God can actually cause us to abort and even kill the very promise we've devoted our lives to learning about. So that would be an example of where I'm coming from. Heath, you mentioned the idea of needing to filter information. Um, And certainly we live in a time and a culture where uh, information intake is nonstop. Um, how, How do we do that? How do we filter? How do we know what to filter? What are some parameters to know that um, what we're receiving and what we're inputting into our minds and our hearts is valuable and worthwhile uh, within the kingdom and then what isn't? Okay. Boy, uh, boy, I wish we had 10 hours to talk about that one. That's a, that's a, a sweet spot for me. Uh, my, where I'm coming from on that would be, uh, first of all, let's make sure that we avoid du- a dualistic approach to life. Uh, we know that dualism, you know, separating uh, between secular and spiritual or secular and sacred, uh, even though most cannot prove, many assume that the concept of dualism is traced back to Rene Descartes, a uh, philosopher who in many ways had some great things to say. And at the same time, there were some things Descartes said or stood for that um, we would say are anticlimactic with Judeo-Christian scripture. But the notion of dualism oftentimes uh, has shaped and defined how we interact with reality. Um, I can I can uh, learn something in chemistry and find my heart motivated to worship God just as much as if I'm reading scripture. And I'm in no way saying chemistry and scripture on the same level. What what I am saying is that everything, the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, and at the same time, when we bifurcate in our lives and we say, okay, I'm going to work, I'm going to school, and then when I get home, I will do something spiritual, oftentimes we forget that we are surrounded Um, By the glory of God, we are surrounded by things that are spiritual and sacred. And oftentimes I see that a dualistic approach to thinking is a culprit behind our inability or our unwillingness to filter appropriately. So how do we filter? Uh, A few practices I've employed. Number one, I make sure that I spend significant amounts of time in the Word of God. Um, I'm deeply concerned about the level of biblical literacy when it comes not to just those who are part of a congregation. uh, And at the risk of sounding a bit cynical, I'm also concerned at the level level of biblical literacy that exists um, in the lives of a lot of leaders um, who stand in front of our congregations. Um, You know, we, we live in an age where many of us were taught to open up the Bible and preach a topical sermon. And inadvertently, what can happen is we use the Bible to back up our opinion. We open up with a funny story. We share a few points, find a few Bible verses to back up those points, and then close with a sappy story because everybody knows that's what you're supposed to do, right? Well, unfortunately, what can happen is the Word of God becomes a support to what we have to say to our congregation. And I would like to suggest that ultimately, All we have to offer our congregation 
is scripture. And it's important that we exegete in context. It's it's important that we are expositors. It's important that we um, partner with the Holy Spirit when we communicate. There's nothing wrong with telling stories, but I think the point I'm trying to prove is this. The Word of God is our reality. The Word of God is our filter, and it's very difficult to ascertain and discern whether or not something is worth keeping or throwing away if we don't even uh, know what the Word of God has to say to begin with. So that would be a significant piece. Another uh, simple thing I'm trying to do is I'm really trying to invest time and study um, from sources of literature that are not just Western. Uh, What I mean by that is uh, oftentimes a lot of the commentaries, a lot of the books that we are reading were written by people who don't necessarily understand the biblical worldview. If we're not careful, we believe that we can confuse the message of Jesus and the gospel with an American version of Christianity. I'm reminded of what Senator uh, Chaplain Halverson said, former chaplain of the Senate. He said, in the beginning, the church was a community of men and women who were focused on the living Christ. And then the church moved to Greece, where it became a philosophy. Next, it emigrated throughout Europe, where it became a culture Then it moved to Rome, where it became an institution, and now it finds itself in America, where it has become an enterprise. Hmm. Uh, I think it's important that we de-Westernize some of our minds and we return to the Hebraic way of thinking when we approach the text. In so doing, I think it then becomes possible to read literature, to read a variety of sources, and to understand what is worth keeping and what is worth setting aside. Okay, so a um, couple thoughts. Um, what you're suggesting is obviously much more than a sort of um, swap of information or a, um, even just a change of approach. Like it's really like asking hard questions about our existing worldview, um, our the filter that we run things through. And uh, you touched on some big ones with dualism, which informs uh, the practices of a leader and the practices of a church in ways that they probably aren't even aware. Um, but then also the idea of uh, biblical literacy, specifically the way we handle the scriptures when we uh, teach and preach others. So uh, let me ask you this question. Um, One of the challenges with this idea of unlearning is that the people that we've learned things from that we may need to ask hard questions about are people who deeply impacted us, um, served as well, God used in our lives. How do we walk through that tension of honoring those that have been instrumental in our spiritual journeys, and also uh, um, I've seen people who have unlearned some things in the process. They've thrown people under the bus because now they feel like they have the new truth, the full truth, and they sort of are almost bitter towards people who they think previously held them back from it. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes all the sense in the world. How do we guard, um, how would, do we guard our hearts in that? Yeah, I would say a great um, uh, significant sign when it oftentimes when we are, quote, unlearning, what can happen if we're not careful is we become elitist, uh, we become jaded, and we tend to think that we are the more intelligent person in the room. And I would just suggest that the greatest misunderstandings in life are not intellectual. The greatest misunderstandings are spiritual. We know that because Scripture tells us, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Uh, We ultimately do not just think with our mind. We think with our heart. And 
when when we are growing in knowledge, when we are developing our wisdom, uh, when our understanding is increasing, that will manifest in a variety of ways. One of the ways it manifests in is our level of honor, our ability to be rigorous without being ruthless, our ability to honor those who have gone before us. And in a way, we have the ability to allow somebody's spiritual ceiling to become our floor. Uh, There are some leaders who have paved the path for all of us, and nobody knows everything. So there's always going to be a reason to think, oh, that uh, teacher or that professor or that leader who invested in my life, boy, they really missed it here. No, they were just doing the best they could. I think it's important to look at how did Jesus do this? Jesus, when he was talking with a group of religious leaders, he epitomizes to me on learning. He's, if you remember, he says, and I apologize, I don't remember the reference, but he's having a conversation with a group of religious leaders, and they're talking about spiritual practices, orthopraxy. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, you should have practiced the former Without neglecting the latter, what is he saying? He's saying, hey, you know what? There is more that you need to fold into your intellectual, spiritual, emotional rhythm. There is more that you can apply to your life. So continue to build off of what you already know. Don't throw it away. Don't set it aside, but incorporate more into it. To me, Jesus models how to honor, how to apply what you've been taught and apply what you've learned without negating it, without casting aspersions, and yet calling them to a higher level and a newer level of thinking. Uh, Jesus modeled that perfectly. One other quick example would be when Paul and Peter disagree. If you'll remember, they had a stark disagreement, and they actually, Peter in the text, calls Peter out. I'm sorry, Paul calls Peter out and he challenges him. And what we see is this, is there came a time even in Peter's life, Peter, the guy who stood up during the Feast of Pentecost, Peter, the guy who in many ways paid a significant price for the the embryonic church. But even Peter reached a point where he, once again, he was being seduced by a uh, uh, a different, a warped understanding of how to apply the law to the life of the believer in Christ. And Paul had to confront Peter, but Paul also uh, honors Peter. And so I think that we see in both the life of Jesus and the life of Paul, what we can't do is ignore the dysfunctions that exist. And I use the word dysfunction, um, understanding that sometimes it comes across harsh, but we can't ignore those things. We, we don't do God a favor when we tolerate things that cause us to live at a, a mediocre uh, spiritual level. What we don't want to do, however, is become dishonorable, become jaded. We want to allow somebody's spiritual ceiling to become our floor. And I would suggest if somebody becomes dishonorable, uh, I'll echo the words of Paul again, let not a man think more highly of himself than he ought, um, because the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to. 
And so if we are dishonorable, maybe it's just another example of how infantile we really are spiritually. And before we speak about everything we know, I think it's imperative that we make sure that the honor that is necessary to give us the authority to speak to those things is present. And to bring this full circle, uh, that's that um, account that you referenced from Galatians 2 when Paul confronts Peter. Um, Paul doesn't introduce a lot more information or seem to overwhelm him with any sort of like philosophical uh, intellectual arguments. He, he, uh, the text actually says that Paul says, when I saw that Peter was not living in line with the truth of the gospel. And so there's this way in which Paul uh, pulls Peter back to the simplicity of what matters most. And yes. how do we, how do we, how does all of our dysfunction flow out of this lack of focus on the things that matter most? Uh, Heath, thanks again for spending some time with us. Um, two things before we let you go. Number one, if our listeners want to connect with you online, how do they do that? Yes. Uh, thanks, David. You can go to heathadamson.com. That's my website. Uh, I'm from time to time engaged on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I have a author Facebook account. Um, but yeah, heathadamson.com is the best way. And um, if they're interested, they can just give me their name and email and sign up from time to time. I just send out some of the things I'm working on, I'm writing on, and um, uh, anticipate sending out free chapters of preview books in the future to those who are interested. So give me your name and email at heathadamson.com, and I'll be happy to uh, send you some additional content. Nice. Yeah, Heath is a good Twitter follow. He uh, He's always putting some stuff out there that's going to make you think. Um, Heath, last thing we want to do is we want to end with our portion, David's Eats, and uh, this time uh, I'll be a little more specific. Um, okay. <laughs> I know one of your favorite foods in the world is meat in a tube. Um, yes, sir. And uh, you and I in Pasadena one evening chased down some hot dogs and we're pretty happy with what we found, um, despite the fact that we had just eaten a full Mexican dinner. Um <laughs> But uh, tell our listeners, or the question we want to ask you is like, what is your, um, what is your, well, let me ask, let me ask it this way. What is sort of your uh, go-to hot dog topping combination as far as like, this is like just maybe a simple one that you say, this is what I, this is what's safe and I like. And then what's maybe like the craziest hot dog toppings combination you've ever tried? All right. Okay. uh, When it comes to safe, um, I love mayonnaise and jalapeno peppers on my all beef Frankfurter. Wow. Okay. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's people, what I like. Most people would safe. not say that's safe. <laughs> I like mayonnaise and jalapeno peppers. And then um, when it comes to adventurous, um, you know, I've, I've had everything from uh, kimchi and eggs and bacon on my hot dog. That's been delightful. Um, I've had rattlesnake meat what? and a horseradish mustard on my hot dog that was oh, fantastic at a place in Colorado. Um, you know, I will say this, however, uh, no matter what, I'm still apprehensive about purchasing hot dogs from a street vendor in a third world country. I just can't muster up the gumption to get meat in a tube from somebody who more than likely has never been inspected by anybody who watches out for emerging viruses like the Ebola virus or other hunter viruses that kill human beings. So for whatever reason, meat in a tube from a street vendor in a third world country, I'm not that adventurous. But, um, hey, I'm willing to try if anybody has any <laughs> recommendations. Heath, thanks so much. This has been great. Uh, we appreciate you being with us and sharing with us. If you've not checked out Heath's stuff, make sure you do it. This is the Multiply Podcast. We'll see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.